Hello, Sparks fans. If you're hearing this, it means you're listening to the second release of episode 11, which contains the final versions of Martin Gordon's songs, Will of the People, and Idiots. Enjoy. Hello out there, Sparks fans who are all proud members of the Maelstrom. I had the distinct pleasure of interviewing Martin Gordon from his home in Berlin on Monday, March 16, 2020. When we had originally booked this interview, COVID-19 hadn't yet transmogrified into the world-altering horror show that we're dealing with as I write this. Martin may have been quarantined in his home while we spoke, but he was under no obligation to be as generous with his time as he was, and I thank him immensely for that. Now, if you're unfamiliar with Martin, who hails originally from Ipswich, Suffolk, UK, you're doubtlessly familiar with the music he's had a hand in creating. The breadth of his discography is staggering. He started his music career as Sparks' first bassist from their UK incarnation. Ron and Russell hired Martin on in 1973, and his bass work can be heard throughout all of Kimono My House, as well as on some B-sides of the era, most notably Barbecuity. Now, for reasons we'll discuss in the interview, his stint with Sparks was short-lived. Afterward, he helped found the glam supergroup Jet, which released one LP in 1976. Uh, Martin was the chief songwriter on that album. When Jet reorganized and retooled in 1977 as the punk-influenced radio stars, he contributed nearly all of their songs, including the minor hits No Russians in Russia and Nervous Wreck. Mainstream success eluded both Jet and radio stars, although they have received some favorable reviews from retrospective releases, most of which came out in the early 2010s. Accompanying Jet's re-release in 2010, James Allen of All Music wrote the following. As befits their Roxy-slash-Sparks connections, Jet were definitively camped on the brainier side of glam. Instead of thudding, clap-along beats and simple guitar hooks, they created sophisticated little art rock gems, with Davy O'List's guitar lines sometimes evoking Queen Axeman Brian May's orchestral approach to the sixth string. Singer Andy Ellison's delivery was arch and mannered, as befits the milieu. Imagine David Bowie imitating Sparks's Russell Mail with wry lyrics to match. About Radio Stars' re-release of their 1977 debut, Songs for Swinging Lovers, Dave Thompson, who, by the way, is one of this podcast's primary sources, offered, The debut LP is supreme power pop punk with fiendishly witty lyrics, subject matter ranging from Greek restaurant menus, macaroni and mice, to serial killers, Beast of Barnsley, and unrequited love, Nervous Wreck. Nailed to some genuinely, memorably, rocketing riffs. Rating, 9 out of 10. Martin relocated to Paris in 1979, where he was brought on as house producer for Barclay Records. Known for his signature Rickenbacker 4001 bass, as well as his prodigious skills as an arranger and producer, the Rolling Stones enlisted Martin's talents for their Emotional Rescue album. And that experience kicked off a fruitful career as session musician and sometimes producer for a myriad of pop A-listers. That list includes George Michael, Boy George, 
Blur, Primal Scream, Kylie Minogue, Robert Palmer, just among many, many, many others. In the early 90s, Martin involved himself in world music and partnered with Bollywood diva Asha Bosley, pardon me if I'm mispronouncing that, whom he accompanied on a lengthy tour of South Asia. He then took a scholarship to study the Gamelan Ensemble Music of Indonesia and produced an album that was supported by several highly elaborate theatrical presentations at London's Palace Theatre as part of the 1997 Jazz Festival in Montreux, Switzerland. In the early 2000s, after Martin had relocated to Berlin, Martin finally turned his attention to solo work. Since 2003, he has released seven studio albums, all of which reveal the disparate musical influences he has spent his career soaking up and influencing in turn. These albums include the so-called Mammal Trilogy, The World is Your Lobster, Include Me Out, Thanks for All the Fish, an entire disc of Gilbert and Sullivan covers titled Gilbert, Gordon, and Sullivan, and his most recent LP, OMG. Regarding Martin Gordon's musical style, as you can imagine, you can't put his music in a tidy box. I did, however, remark to a friend that I thought his last couple of albums sounded like Roger Waters and Monty Python taking a shit ton of shrooms and playing as the house band for the restaurant at the end of the universe. I can't urge you enough to check out Martin's website at martingordon.de. That's D for Deutschland, of which he is a permanent resident. He has in-depth descriptions of his various musical works there and keeps a blog that's wittier than anything I've ever attempted in my journalistic career, of course. During the interview, you'll be listening to in just a few seconds, you'll get to hear a very small sampling of some of the music that Martin's recorded over the years. I also urge you to buy some of the full-length releases those are from, uh, which are all helpfully available on his website. And now, Mr. Martin Gordon. Martin, thank you so much for agreeing to do this uh, interview with me for my my Sparks podcast. You're welcome. How are you, and how are things? Before we get into your your music, uh, of, of course, you know there's this elephant in the room, a very tiny one that's affecting us all across the globe. How are things regarding the coronavirus in Berlin right now for you? I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of stunned, really, never having uh, been through uh, an apocalypse-type situation. So I'm not, I'm not it, really sure. Yeah. How, how does one prepare how, for an apocalypse, right? <laughs> well, apparently one goes out and buys toilet paper. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah. Then. And the, uh, the English, uh, I just read on The Guardian, the English have been going out and buying toilet paper substitutes because the toilet paper is all gone so they've been buying kitchen rolls and using it for the same purpose and now the okay. sewers are being uh, clogged oh wow goodness i mean this so, is you know, this is as the the best time i could imagine to start using bidets 
Um, For example, yeah, I yeah. mean, this doesn't affect Asians, of course. Right, exactly, exactly. I, and I, ironically, that's that that was the the source of it. Um, well, again, thank you, thank you so much uh, for for agreeing to do this. Um, I, I've got, I mean, I I've got tons of questions, but I don't want to take up too much of your time. Uh, that's okay. We're not allowed out anyway. Oh, so you're under quarantine? Um, it's only unofficial, but uh, that's the idea. Yeah. If you go out, okay. then um, you're going to be quizzed. Quizzed. As to your, okay. As to your purpose. No. Not like papers, please, but uh, but they'll they'll give you a stern look. Ah, well, that's normal actually, because in Germany you have to carry uh, ID at all times. Oh, really? Okay. Yes. Wow, all those all those World War II movies um, taught me uh, something actually useful about uh, the way they still do things. Yeah, they do, and they shout "Achtung!" Achtung! <laughs> Um, well, so, um, I, uh, again, yeah, there's a lot of stuff I want to, uh, 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 talk to you about. Uh, you have a, uh, a, a new album that you've released very recently, OMG. That was pretty recently. Am I right? Uh, yes, it was, uh, this month, I think. I mean, it seems kind of absurd to be talking about pop music in times of, uh, yeah. <laughs> international un, un, understood crisis, understood you know yeah. what i mean yes. <laughs> yeah uh, absolutely um yeah i mean i so i i've i've listened to it to a few tracks and you know sp- speaking on kind of a, a global scale again there uh y- you do have some pretty appropriate what, what i would call protest songs on there um what, what is it um the w- will of the people which, uh, for example, for example, yeah, which uh, which is stuck in my head. Um, well, you know, I mean, the thing about the protest is that your question, your email question, yeah. is, uh, which referred to, is this stuff protest? I mean, how mm-hmm. can any thinking artist not protest yeah. against against the tsunami of stupidity which is overwhelming us? Yeah, I, I, and in I, fact, I, I, I've changed my opinion from earlier days when I used to consider that pop music and politics should be eternally separated. I've right. completely changed my opinion, and I must admit, I'm extremely disparaging of uh, artists who say, "No, no, no, I don't do politics," because I think any artist who doesn't reflect the uh, his or her social environment, right. Is is a cabaretist and is not even uh, doesn't merit the the term artist.
earlier in in your career, you probably would have balked at doing uh, any uh, politically themed songs. Whereas, yes. is that fair to say? I think it is. I mean, on the basis that uh, I always thought that uh, that kind of stuff should be dealt with by people who knew what they were talking about, rather than the bunch of uh, you know a, a bunch of guitar toting right. Uh, loonies right yeah um, it just kind of starts it, to oh sorry go ahead yeah none of the, the, the what well it just starts i'm sure it's it's uh starts to sort of feel like you know rome is burning and you know we're all just fiddling on our guitars you know you might as might yeah as but i think mind. there is no such thing as being uninformed anymore you know it's it's not possible to be uninformed uh whereas in in earlier times you know if you were in in london in the 70s and your your focus was uh guitars and rock music mm-hmm. then you probably had no ability to or, or you had no interest in being in, right. informed about stuff outside of your environment but and today we're living in a, di- a different time, and so everybody, whether they want to, whether they want to be informed or not, yeah, are deluged with daily absolutely. with a tsunami of information. Drinking there is the no, the, there's no possibility to describe the position of. I don't know. You can't even you can't say the expression anymore. I don't know about that. So, when did you start incorporating more political messages in, into your music that I, I I've been having to keep a catch up with your with your your catalog there and obviously you've got you know the will of the people in this album here and uh, and you had an uh, uh, anti-trump song on your previous album clearly yeah uh, I, I guess will the people obviously would be about brexit correct yeah yeah idiots was also about idiots. brexit but I mean Idiots here, idiots there. Uh, exactly. One of my finest achievements. <laughs> um. The Brits had now to Belgian domination. Flemish command of our pajamas. We'll bring control of fruit back to the nation Maintain the curve of our bananas And let that We'll squash you flat Now we said no to Brussels and to aliens Although we haven't thought it through Don't want no wolves, no warrens or Westphalians Just plain folks like me and you And that Idiots here, idiots there, idiots everybody in 
That's a good one. So when did that change start to happen in your songwriting? Well, you know, I mean, I don't... well, for me, I guess it changed once I had a child, actually, I suppose, mm-hmm. if, if I'm going to identify the thing on a personal level. But, I mean, pop music has has never exclusively been about entertainment and um, and, and glitz. I mean, if you look at the, the greats, if you go back as far as um, Noel Coward mm-hmm. and Gilbert and Sullivan, as I did, yes. um, these things, these creations are always informed by the society in which they live and the politics of the time. So uh, let me ask you something. You're, you're, you live in Berlin. First off, how long have you, have you lived there? I think it's 21 years. Wow. So my first question is, what, what brought you there? It was love. That's a good enough reason, as any the I've power heard. of love. <laughs> uh, excellent. Okay, so uh, so it was for the 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 love of a woman, and uh, and you guys have made a home over there, and you had a child. You just said as well. Well, uh, you cut a very long story short. No, we broke up almost immediately. Okay. But um, <laughs> but I stayed, and I did have a child. And so, you know, that compresses everything into a neat little bundle. Yeah. But you stuck around. Even after the relationship didn't didn't pan out, you still uh, decided to stay. Sure, the Germans are so witty and light and playful. You know, how can one not love them? How How is the, the culture different uh, there from from the UK, from your perspective? Um, it's deceptive because... They look the same, you know. I mean, it's easy being in um, Asia or Africa because right. clearly people are different. But when you move to a culture where people look the same, you kind of – I found that I expected them to be the same. Um, and I was quite shocked to find how how radically different the Germans are to uh, – well, the English, that being my experience. It's a very different culture. They're extremely respectful of authority. Right. For example. Yeah, there there is a history of that. Uh, there is a history of that. You may have spotted that. Uh, yes. Uh, um so what what are you are you doing anything to to promote uh, OMG right now? Are you touring? Are you playing shows locally? Not really. All right. I mean, it, it's expensive, <laughs> yeah. you know, and uh, who cares? <laughs> I get that. <laughs> you know, I mean, occasionally some people come out of the woodwork and they and they say uh, and they come up with bizarre one-off things. So, uh, that, hence my connection to Sweden, and hence my uh, my debut as a say, as a solo performer was in Boston once. For yeah. one gig, and then we came back again. Uh, but you know, in the uh, in the bigger scheme of things, uh, it tends to cost money to put these things on. So, um, no, is the answer to that. <laughs> yeah, I did hear that the um, that concert in Boston, that live performance in Boston, actually just uh, earlier today, because I was trying to find a recording of Cover Girl. And it was it was pretty elusive. Any time I kept uh, looking for Jet, 
I kept getting that uh, American 2000s era band. Yeah. Um, Australian, you mean, surely. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Well, Australian. Okay. Thanks for, thank, thank you for that. Uh, so the, the, uh, I, I had to settle for that, uh, a live performance of that song, uh, Cover Girl, uh, in your, your Boston, uh, recording there. Uh, okay. Yeah. That was an interesting story. Um, there was a, a band in Boston who described themselves as Math Prog. Uh-huh. Who were called Tristan de Kunha, and they developed uh, an an unhealthy love for the Jet album. And on two occasions, they performed the entire Jet album live on their local radio station. And then they sent it to me, and it was great. It was probably better than, than we did it. Um, and then the drummer said to me. Um, how about you come over here? We know all your stuff. Uh, you come over here and we'll be your band. And so that's what we did. Had you come across very many Jet fans in, say, the 15 or 20 years preceding that? Um, well, not at the time of Jet, unfortunately, which would yeah. have helped considerably, but uh, I mean, that's... That, that was not to be. Um, right. Subsequently, uh, yes, all these, all these weirdos um, turn up in... Uh, I mean, in in some number, actually. Yeah, it's an, an, another another one of those uh, one of those uh, bizarre aspects of living in the of the age of exactly the, the fire hose media. Yeah, exactly. All, all the time, uh, always. So, um, uh, obviously, I, I this is a Sparks podcast, so I'll, I I want to ask you a few questions about your uh, experience uh, with uh, with Sparks and. <sighs> I kind of want to go back to the the beginning, actually, pretty all the way back. Uh, for, first off, I, I I read that uh, that you 
that you learned uh, music at a very, very young age. I think piano, guitar, something like that. Uh, piano and then bass. Um, I studied with uh, Jeff Klein, the great bass player from uh, Nucleus oh, right. later. Um, and then I was in the National Jazz Youth Orchestra for a short while. So, yes, I did. So who were some of uh, some of your your guiding stars, your big influences uh, when you were very young and growing up and becoming a musician? Um, in terms of bass or in terms of music? Well, both really, um, if, if you don't mind. Sure. Well, I mean, there is a difference, of course. You know. <clears throat> I mean, in terms of bass... Uh, Andy Fraser and Jack mm-hmm. Bruce, I think. So when I was growing up, it was uh, late sixties, early seventies. Mm-hmm. Uh, Andy Fraser being the guy from Free and Jack Bruce, I'm sure you know. So um, did did you know anyone in John's Children in in those days? In my growing up days. Yeah, late late sixties or so, because you you no, no. had an ongoing yeah. relationship with you know John Hewlett and Chris Townsend and all those folks. So I was I was wondering if they were a part of your experience, the uh, John's the John's children folks. Uh, no, I mean that was all post Spark. So when I was growing up, um, I. I think I would. I think I heard John's children, but this was only when I was at school, and you know, so I didn't fall into that kind of uh, circle until uh, I moved into the uh, sort of Ron and Russell and Hewlett circle with the audition for Sparks. Yeah, t- tell me about that a little bit, if if you don't mind. That was there was an ad that they posted, and uh, I guess it was uh, Melody Maker and. You you just responded to it, and that was that was that. That's right. I mean, <clears throat> in those days, you could put an advert in Melody Maker, um, and and people would be very open. They would. Say, I remember seeing an advert that said um, Genesis, Genesis need vocalists, <laughs> and there was also uh, there was an advert for King Crimson as well. Oh my gosh! And um, I picked out. I figured this is the way for me to go, uh, and I picked out, or I, I saw three adverts, I think, and one was uh, Super Tramp, and one was Sparks, and one was oh, well, one was Roxy Music, right? Oh they, my all, they, all three wanted bass players, all around the same time. Wow, Roxy and, Music didn't have a bass I went, player. I went to them all actually. I went to Super Tramp, and they had a, a horrible house in Earl's Court in in London. And they were all living there, and it kind of smelled of lentils. <laughs> and it, it was, I, I must say, though, that they weren't as good as they subsequently became at that time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, we all, we played, and I thought, oh, I thought, no, this is not for me. Yeah, that was um, a ways before the Breakfast in America. <laughs> oh, way before. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, subsequently, they became great, of course. Yeah. You know, but they they were still transitioning from this kind of sort of, I, I don't know, fake English country band or something. But anyway, it, it wasn't very interesting for me at the time. 
second one was uh, Rocks Music, which was in a basement in Holland Park. And uh, that I thought was great, if if rather odd, um, mm-hmm. in terms of the pe- the people who were there <laughs> and, and the you know and their their behaviour. Yeah. Uh, but that one I didn't get, um, and plus I didn't get it on my second uh, audition, which came along about two years later, either. Um, and the third one was Sparks, and that one uh, wasn't a, an audition at all. It was a it was an interview. Oh. Um, so so you, I you drove... didn't actually you didn't actually play your bass for them. No. For that first. No, no. Interesting. Uh, we went. Uh, I drove with a a drummer friend of mine because obviously now that I think of it, obviously they were looking for a bass player and drummer. And um, we drove down and sat in uh, John Hewlett's kitchen and um, discussed matters of the day. What was your initial impression of Ron and Russell? Well, I'd seen them on some English TV program recently, you know, so some weeks before. And so I thought, okay, this is some kind of celebrity thing uh-huh. so it's probably a good way to go yeah if you want to be a if you want to be a musician did they and, play uh, i'm sorry did, did did they had you heard any of their music before then uh, via the i think it was the old gray whistle test so right. via this tv show yes so, and it wasn't exactly what i was listening to at the time which is to be honest, which is basically yes, you know oh, wow. the band yes. So, um, is, I mean, is it fair to say you had you had a more of a jazz education on the bass? Not really, to be honest. Okay, not really. I mean, it, it, it was classical music, and then it was it was theory, you know, but theory uh, unattached to any particular kind of practice. I would say, although Jeff Klein comes from jazz, mm-hmm. right. my my tutor of the time, but we weren't doing we weren't doing jazz shit, you know. Right. So it, it's it's my understanding that you went to that audition and you were you were told told to believe that they were seeking uh, another songwriter. Is that right? <laughs> Um, yeah, well, you, you say audition, it, it was a chat the, in, the, a chat, in the kitchen. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, um, I think I said, I asked at one point, what are you looking for? And the response has been, um, has been recorded that it was a, uh, you know, that, that they were looking for some kind of, um, collective yeah. thing. So let, let me Collaborative ask you, thing. So when when you were hired on, I mean, I I it, it didn't happen from that just initial chat, did it? I mean, I'm sure you took out your Rickenbacker and played for them at some point before they made their decision. Oh yeah, uh, months later, really quite a long time later, uh, after I'd had my hair cut because I, I had <laughs> at the time I went down to uh, to meet John. 
uh, I had long hair, and then I I went back home and I figured, <laughs> fuck it, no, this is not going to happen. I had all my hair cut, and then uh, I got a phone call saying, please come back, and this time, bring your base. Okay. So yeah. Do you remember what reality? You- did they did they have some of some of the songs that they were working on that they they wanted you to just kind of jump in and and uh, and play the bass parts? Well, we went to Barnet where uh, Chris Townsend lived because at this time they didn't have a drummer, so Chris was playing drums, hmm. and I have a feeling that even Trevor was playing guitar, and we did three songs with the word "girl" in the title, mm-hmm. um, and they. You can probably figure them out. Yeah, yeah, but, I think I do. But but they were the songs that we uh, that we did. So I mean, it's quite strange actually if I think about it now to call somebody back for on, for an audition on the basis of how they look. Uh, but but anyway, hey. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's 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 that that's them. <laughs> there you go. So um, so what were those rehearsals like? I mean, obviously, I mean you you guys. You know the uh, the net result of all that was Kimono My House, which is one of the most amazing records I've ever listened to. Yeah, well, there was a long process from those things, which weren't rehearsals, of course. They were just auditions. Mm. Um, and at that time, there was no guitar player or drama, which is why Chris and Trevor were doing the uh, filling in the gaps. Was Adrian not uh, Adrian Fisher no. not on board yet? No, so the the next step was uh, looking for a drummer and then looking for a guitar player. Excellent. So, as in in terms of hashing out the songs, once you guys were in the recording studio, getting everything together, what was that process like? Was it did it end up just being Ron, you know, would show up and say, "These are the songs we're gonna do." this is the part you're going to play, or was it more collaborative than that? Well, I mean, in those days, of course, the process was not going into a studio. It, it was, uh, and I follow this process to the present day, mm-hmm. is that you rehearse the song. So we spent really a long time, some months, rehearsing the songs in, in a horrible little dance studio in Clapham, which had a mirror. So that, yeah. that was okay for some people because they could just look at themselves and say, hey, I look great, you know, <laughs> uh, while the other people were getting on with the music. Um, and I suppose, you know, I mean, it's difficult looking back on situations with, with the stuff that you know today, but right. I mean, I would say that there was a lot of uh, conflict and and uh, th- there was a lot of process that was involved in uh, producing the end product because a number of people had opinions and you know it's through that kind of sifting out of ideas that you finally end up with something good if you're lucky right it doesn't always work of course M- musically how are you feeling about the direction that they wanted to take, they meeting uh, Ron and Russell. How, how are you feeling about the kinds of songs that they wanted to make? Well, I mean, uh, it was their thing, and I didn't feel I, I, I was in a position to say, hey, guys, this should be a reggae song. You mm. know what I mean? 
So, uh, you know, the borders were, were set, but within those kind of, within that frame. Right. Some things were more successful than others, I felt. And uh, I, I probably made it clear uh, which things are more successful than other things for me. Yeah. Um, so a, a, a couple of things. I, I know that you had CoverGirl that you really wanted onto that album on Kimono My House. Is, is, that, is that correct? Is that fair to say that you were pushing to get CoverGirl on there? Uh, not entirely. I think I, uh, I didn't want to bite off more than I could chew at right. the beginning. I think I actually only introduced the idea. I mean, it, even though we, our initial discussions were, uh, on the basis of a collaboration as I, you know, th- th- that was the message. Yeah. Um, I don't think I came back to that thing until, after the album was recorded and uh, we were looking for live material to put together for uh, for the live days which were coming up. And I think at that point, which is quite late you know, in the process, um, I think at that point I said, oh, by the way, I have a – there's a tune which I think could fit in quite well into the live set. So I wasn't even talking about recording at this point. Right. Um, <clears throat> but this was – a step too far. Right. I mean, was it understood f- by you early on that no, they weren't actually looking for another songwriter and you would have to go ply your trade elsewhere if you wanted to write songs for a band? Was that something that happened early in your experience with them? Um, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I wouldn't, uh, you know, I, I actually wasn't a kind of fully fledged songwriter by that time so it's not as though i turned up with you know a whole bunch of tunes to that i could propose any oh i I didn't think from the beginning okay i'm just waiting for an opportunity to say look i've got 45 songs here that we should look at um but i think during the process i uh began to figure out the 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 vibe and um it's probably during the recording of kimono my house if i think about it uh, with any kind of rigor that i actually began to um put my pop ideas uh-huh. together so but i didn't introduce the idea of cover girl uh until we were doing some live rehearsals we we were still doing these live rehearsals at the old uh, dance studio in Clapham. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I said, I've got something which I could propose for the live show. Um, <clears throat> and uh, the, it, uh, there, was, there was no significant response. <laughs> and so we all moved joyfully down to Manticore in Fulham, where we uh, began to prepare a live show, and then the the final act opened. So you guys ended up making a, a hit record, obviously, and you went on top of the pops and everything. But it was at least um, at least from your perspective, it was it was, it was pr- pretty short lived. Uh, it was I- extremely short lived. Yeah, it was about <laughs> it was about a year or something, or possibly even less. At, at, at mm. what point were you, were you thinking, 
I don't think it's going to work out with with this band with with, with these guys, despite the success. Uh, at no point. So extraordinarily that, enough, so that because was that communications was from... were so um, ineffective mm-hmm. that when. Um, uh, when I received a phone call early one morning uh, from uh, the, not even from the manager, from somebody else, uh, to say, uh, what did he say? He said, "Oh, hello, Martin. They don't want you in the group anymore." <laughs> uh, <laughs> so you can imagine this came, this came as something of a, a surprise, should we say? Oh boy, sealed with a kiss, and and of course you were not <clears throat> you were not the only one. No, I mean, it was clear that, that things were were never really hunky-dory, but then they never were anyway, you know. So, in fact, right. it, it wasn't even the question of degree from, because from the very beginning, things were extremely uncomfortable. But the thing is, though, that the result was extremely good. Right. So, you know, I guess today I would say, you know, if, 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 if the result... Did you, has the quality that it does, then you can kind of you you can overlook some uh, some flaws in the process. You know? Oh yeah, I mean that, that absolutely. Sometimes the you know the ends justify the means. I mean you've got a, yeah. a an amazing an, an amazing final product there. Um, did you keep up with uh, with Dinky or with uh, with Adrian much after that? I didn't. Um, I hooked up with Adrian many years later. He was living in Thailand, and uh, the internet had been developed, and uh, we exchanged emails, and that was very nice because Adrian was a proper, <laughs> it was a yeah. proper musician, should we say? Yeah. Um, no, we I, I didn't uh, have any contact with. So, in, in the wake of that, um, of being dismissed from Sparks, uh, you helped um, form Jet, as we talked about earlier, and that had a couple of members of Juke, am I right? Yeah, uh, one. Okay, okay. So, the, yes, the, because, as you know, I'm sure, uh, two members of Juke stepped into Sparks, yes. And so um, Duke was then defunct. Right, 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 right. And so one of the members of Duke went off to work for Warner Brothers as an A&R man. And the other one um, was Chris. And we hooked up and uh, vented our mutual spleen about the situation that we found ourselves in. And they said, hey, let's form a duo. Right. And we 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 went and rehearsed as a duo, as a bass and drums duo. And then Chris said to me, um, he was always full of ideas. Chris, he said, yeah. "Do you think we should uh, expand it a bit? Get a get a singer, maybe?" Uh, and so oh, I said, "Well, thing. okay, if you know one." And he knew this guy Andy Ellison, and so this is where the John's Children thing begins to rear its ugly head. So that I mean that so that was uh, short lived. You guys cut I, I believe one LP as, as Jet. Yes. And then in its wake, uh, you formed um, Radio Stars, which had many of the many of the same guys. Is that right? Uh, yeah. Well, it was me and Chris and Andy. I mean, we didn't form Radio Stars. We flogged off some Jet recordings. Uh huh. 
to a record company who obviously didn't want to have anything to do with Jet, and so we told them, no, it's not, it's not Jet, it's it's an entirely new group. But it, in fact, it was entirely the same group. And um, show business being what it is, um, we found ourselves with a new name. You know, well, I, you know, I've, <clears throat> I was, I, I have to uh, confess that I hadn't heard Radio Stars um, before, say, a couple of months ago, and um, I, I was really taken with the with the sound that you guys had. I mean, it was right at the the inception of punk, you know, 76, That's right. 77. But you guys also had the sort of Broadway show tune sensibility about you sometimes too. I mean, the way you had, you had different people doing these different voices and character, uh, like in a nervous wreck, for example, and you've got that female voice. And, uh, I, 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 I was uh, really struck with how playful the, uh, the music sounded while also, having that kind of punk edge.
and I've never I heard playful. Like uh, playful is is a very good word here. But I mean, uh, plus, just because you're playful, it doesn't mean that you're not serious, also sure. or, or authentic, you know. And I think that's the key. I and mean, Frank Frank Zappa is my uh, my model in this case. Yeah, he's definitely yeah one of my favorite songwriters. And so you were the chief songwriter of uh, Radio Stars, is that right? Yes. Like, like Andy sang, and and you were the Ritz. yeah. I mean, there's some. I mean, there's some. He wrote really... one. Andy wrote one song, but it was Which horrible. One? One, so, uh... <laughs> no Russians in Russia and uh, a nervous wreck. I mean, there's the 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 songs there are are really are really left field, and it's it's interesting for me to to hear them having already been primed with a head full of Sparks songs. And like, I can already see how, you know, Ron and Russell may, may have um, taken a shine to you because it seems like your sensibility in a lot of those songs was not terribly unlike what you might hear from, from Ron. These just, it's, it's weird stuff. I mean, uh, you know, you have a, a woman saying electroencephalogram in, 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 in a song. Gross. You know, um, so it, yeah, that was really interesting. So, what ended up happening with the with the demise of that with the radio stars? Um, the demise of radio stars was well, in a kind of chronological sense, I went into the hospital to have my wisdom teeth out, and they decided to <laughs> go on tour at that point. So, <clears throat> effectively, I was. Uh, Effectively, I was kicked out of my okay. of my own groove. On, on on your website, you you had mentioned something about a dental mishap or something like that, and exactly. I, I had to know exactly. I had to know what the hell you were talking about. <laughs> well, that's that's exactly what it is. The manager came to me in my hospital room and said, "Oh, Andy wants to go on tour," and I said, "But you know, I'm 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 lying here in a hospital bed. You." F- <laughs> um, what can I do about that? And he said, well, you can either sue him and entirely collapse the commercial campaign which has been built about your record, which is just coming out now, which is a new album, uh, which you have written in, in its entirety. Um, or you can just say, okay. And so I think, you know, commercial, my commercial instinct kicked in. And I said, well, I'll just say, okay, then. Were you playing uh, your the Rickenbacker four thousand one? Well, here we are getting into real um, train spotting territory. <laughs> I was actually playing a Rickenbacker three thousand and one. Okay, which is an extremely obscure Rickenbacker. Yeah, I don't think uh, I've seen one. It looks a bit like a like a weird Fender Precision, because at some at that point in the punk era. Uh, more or less, Rickenbacker's equated with prog. Right, right. Like and Rush didn't, used one, I think. Yeah, exactly. And yes, of course. And so you didn't really want to be, you know, lined up with the prog guys. Even though Bruce Foxton, of course, um, played a Rickenbacker for 001 rather badly, but there we are. I mean, that 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 seemed seemed to be your your favored in- instrument. Uh, what 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 about the what what about the Rickenbacker 
really, you know, uh, struck a chord with you? Well, I mean, it depends how you play as a as a musician, but it, playing the way that I did and do um, that instrument really it takes up a lot of space, and if you have something to say, mm-hmm. then uh, it says it very loudly. It takes up a lot of sonic space. It, it, that's thinking. what I mean. Right. I mean, it, it's like the low end of a piano. So, uh, in terms of frequency, it, it fills up an enormous amount of, of uh, space on the spectrum. So, g- going going back to Sparks just just for one moment, uh, it it seems that Ron and Russell didn't like the sound of of your of that bass. Is is that well? Right? I I'm not sure that that's true. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> If you, for example, look at the um, when they when they did come out of my house live on yeah. the times that they've done it, I was amused to see that the bass player was playing a Reckenbacher. Ah, oh. so you know, so obviously it is an integral part of the song. Are you talking uh, about did, the series of shows they did about a dozen or so years ago? Or are you talking there was about that? The- there was that, and there was also in London. There was a special one-off performance of the album only. Interesting. Uh, earlier, the, the Queen Elizabeth Hall. So um, no, I, th- I have a feeling their issue was not with um, it was because it, it wasn't with the sound of the bass, and it wasn't with the thing that the bass played. It was with the guy who played the bass. So I, I ask you that because I I had read in one of these, a, a book by Daryl Eastlea, whom I, you've probably talked to, um, that they were trying to get you to switch to a Fender Precision for at least a song, and I don't know what song it was. And <laughs> Uh, they did. Uh, they yeah. and they did it successfully. The song was uh, "Amateur Hour," the, the ah. recording of "Amateur Hour," and uh, we recorded it just like all the other songs uh, through that recording period in in the various studios uh, with a Rickenbacker bass. And then one day, I had the request to replace the Rickenbacker bass with. This Fender Precision. Oh, look, here's a Fender Precision. Oh, this is exactly the sort of thing we need. And they handed it to me, and uh, I played the identical bass line, uh-huh. um, but with a Fender Precision. It sounded, uh, well, you know, the Fender in my hands um, is a very kind of anonymous rank-and-file instrument, and that's what they wanted. Anonymous and rank and file, and then shortly afterwards, uh, the owner of the Fender was revealed to be yes a suitably anonymous rank and file player. So you know, there's a marriage made in heaven. So going going back to, uh, I just have a, a couple of more things I wanted to ask you about uh, about Kimono My House. When when you when you listen to that record, are there specific moments or specific songs where you're you know you're like, yeah, I that. I did that. I contributed to that. That was, that was a that was a good moment. Are there those moments that really stand out for you that you listen for every time you put it on? Um, I don't listen to it. 
Okay. I have heard it. And my other great moments. I mean, you know, most of it is great, actually. Yeah. I, I think up until about the middle of side two, uh, as we used to say in the yeah. old analog days of vinyl, right. uh, up until the middle of side two, it's pretty solid. Um, there, I don't know. I mean, there are some great ideas in there. And some things are really perfectly executed. And some things are less perfectly. But, uh, for example, um, Hasta Manana, I think, is pretty much spot on. And thank God it's not Christmas. It's also pretty much spot on. Uh, did you... Uh, one of my favorite songs from that era is Barbecutie. Did you did you come up with the, with the bass line for, for Barbecutie? I have no idea, actually. <laughs> I can't remember. People have asked me over the years. In the beginning, I will always used to say, well, yes, of course I did. You know, I'm the bass player. Um, I've, I have no idea. I'm going to ask you one more question about that era and about uh, Ron and Russell. I read in an interview just a couple of days, in an interview with you, that you were at dinner with uh, Chris Townsend and Russell, and Chris it punched Russell in the face. Ah, <laughs> uh, no, Chris told me this. I wasn't there. Oh, okay. <laughs> now, Chris, one of my dearest friends until his death, um, had this kind of innate sense of fairness about him. He wanted stuff to be fair. And he, he was also very, uh, I suppose he was quite tribal, and so he wanted people to like the stuff that he likes. And he, even though he knew that John's children was an appalling pile of old shit, he didn't want anybody to actually say that John's children was an appalling pile of old shit. And as he told me this story, um, they were out, Hewlett and uh, Ron and Russell and, Chris were out discussing the early days of John's children and uh, apparently Russell was rather dismissive of John's children. And so words to the effect of it was a pile of old shit. I mean, you know, not entirely wrongly. Right. Whereupon Chris said to him, that was my band. Don't you talk to me about my band like that and uh, whacked him around the head. There you go. Okay, good. That's, <laughs> that's good enough for me. Um, so I, we're, we're getting short on time, but, um, but I, I wanted to ask you a few, few more questions about what, uh, about your career, uh, after that, uh, you ended up being a touring basis for the stones, uh, recording, not recording. Touring. Okay. How did that happen? Um, right place, right time. Really? They, I happened to be sitting there and they said, shit, Bill Wyman's gone. Uh, it'd gone off to some club or something and I just happened to be there and by this time I knew that show business worked if you seized the moment and yeah. so I thought seize the moment and I said uh, hello uh, I'm a I could do that wow and so, so um, what did I you, did what what was it um, what album did you wind up on I have no idea it was around the time <laughs> of some girls it was okay. recorded in Paris at oh, uh, Cafe Marconi and we did uh, two or three days of uh, hours and hours of aimless jamming. 
Uh, I could ask you questions about uh, Keith and Mick all, all day long, but I'm I'm not going to get into that right now. Uh, uh, but I I I'm pulling this for, from your website. The uh, many of the other acts that you've worked with, and I'm I'm curious to hear how you might describe that experience in just a couple of words. Say George Michael. George Michael. Nice boy. Excellent. Boy George. Fashion victim. <laughs> uh blur. Anonymous bassist. Hmm. Well, I'll tell you about that because um, I did a tour with Blur as a keyboard player. And um, then on the final day of the tour, the the bass player finally deigned to talk to me and said, well, um, so so what have you done then, uh, you know, in your career to date? And I said, well, you know, this and that. Uh, I suppose the thing that you might know about is an album called Kimono My House. Mm. And he said, well, well. Why didn't you tell me? Are you Martin Gordon? Did you play bass on Commander My House? So, uh, no that's why I say anonymous <laughs> bassist. Oh, my God. Um, okay, moving on. Uh, Primal Scream, Bobby Gillespie and company. Oh, okay, two words. Um, now, you, it doesn't com- have to be Completely too, stoned. Completely stoned. Okay, that's about what I expected. Um, and what else do I have here? Kylie Minogue. Small dwarf. <laughs> okay. Um, moving on. So sometime in the nineties, you, um, and I'm sorry, I don't have the name of the artist here, but you ended up going to Bombay and, and, um, toured with, um, I don't know, I guess you were doing, uh, you know, world music or maybe it was, uh, some kind of Indian music. Uh, yes, this was actually a Boy George related project. There was, uh, he, he was singing and then he had the, uh, the cream of India's session players there. Uh, all these kind of people who rock people will not have heard of. Um, and Asher, Asher Bosley, the Hindi film singer mm-hmm. who, you know, to the Hindi community is, uh, and, and indeed to the wider world is an absolute legend. Um, I was invited as a technician, um, mm. in the beginning. And then I insinuated myself as I, as I have done occasionally into other roles and played with the keyboards and did some arranging. And, uh, but that was a very interesting experience. It, open my eyes to the fact that there is more to the world than um, rock guitars in a Western studio. So that my Bombay experience at the end of that with me uh, studying anthropology in London. And I think, you know, it sounds to me like that influenced some of the solo records that you made after that uh, from about 2003 or so, on like up to the present day like i i you know you, you've been churning out these these, these great <laughs> I, yeah i'm I, I, churning I, that churning shit out is, churning this shit out 
Uh, I mean that in a, in a very positive way. Uh, but, uh, because he, you know, you, you hadn't been really a solo artist before, uh, before the early 2000s and then you became one and then were very prolific. And well, I'm not sure. I mean, in fact, Jet and, uh, Radio Stars, I would, I see that actually as just as me being a solo artist, but with other people doing, other roles you know uh so on the the most recent albums uh, that you've that you've made there are you how much of that is just you and, and how many other musicians are are you pulling into the studio well the bass and the vocals and the keyboards are me and then you have uh drums and guitar and you have <clears throat> and this is the thing i learned in in bombay is that you can you know it, well that was that was reconfirmed in Bombay that arrangements are really the key, mm. and arrangements, of course, are not only linear but they're also vertical. So you can say, okay, we're going to have eight bars of bass clarinet here, or eight bars of improvised um, viola. Um, so, so you really I'm had to, pulling, you were an arranger. Say it again. You, you, the the role that you played during that time was that of an arranger. Is that is that right? Uh, For, during which time? Um, the uh, and I'm sorry, I forget the artist's name. But but when uh, you were in in Bombay, you said. Oh you were, no! But no, 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 not at all. But I was oh. working with one of India's finest film music arrangers, Panchan Burman. Panchan Burman. Uh, okay. Yeah. I have to look that R.J. R.J. Burman. Who's, who was Asher Bosley's husband, um, who really was one of the finest arrangers of Hindi film music. But, but I mean, in terms of arrangements, uh, that's always been my thing from the very beginning. So here we come nicely back to the uh, Kimono My House Absolutely. story, you know, it, where, where that was the thing. That was what I brought to the table. Right, and yeah, and I and that I, I read that in this uh, in that book by Daryl Lee Slea that uh, you had a, a, a quite a hand in the uh, arranging. Um, I just wanted to ask you about uh, one more um, musical project that uh, you embarked on, and that's the Gilbert Gordon and Sullivan. What inspired uh, the you to do trio. that? And go, just go on. Just tell tell me about that one because I love it. <laughs> well, I mean, the songs are so great, mm-hmm. you know, as, as it, in every way, they're so great. Lyrically, they're great. Conceptually, they're great. And musically, they're great. Uh, and they're extremely economical. And it, it just, it occurred to me that um, they, they fulfill all the criteria of, of pop music. And so, of you know, contemporary pop music. And so, why could you not take these fantastic songs and record them as if it was pop music from today? Um, in other words, using the pop vernacular of you know, guitar-based drums and bits of keyboards. And that's what I did after a very long um preparatory uh, period where I, I listened to every single thing that they had written, which took me about eight weeks, I think. Oh, wow. And then I selected the best, and really the stuff is the best. 
Yeah, I am a I'm a really big fan of uh, your uh, modern major general. I I could <laughs> I've listened to that on loop a couple of days ago. Uh, but it's really interesting listening to the original recordings and hearing, well, let's let's say the uh, the variation in quality of the of the performers. Yeah, because <laughs> some of the great performers are actually well, actually, are not so great after all if you listen to them from today's. Yeah, but the it, I mean it's all about the compositions and not the performances, of course. Oh wow! Huh. Um, well, so uh, I mean, Martin, you've been tremendously patient answering all of my questions, and and then some. that's okay. I have no choice. I'm not allowed to do anything <laughs> you can't else. Leave right. Uh, exactly. I just got to sit here for the next eight weeks. So you know, if you want to call me again, I please will. do. I'm, I'm sure I definitely will. So what's, I mean, what's coming up next? And I know I'm asking you this uh, just as you've released uh, a, a whole new album, but uh, do you have question. any musical plans uh, for the next couple of months? Let's, let's pre- pretend for a moment that coronavirus is not, you know, dictating our daily schedules. Uh, <laughs> did you have any any plans to... to um, to to do anything with your music on the road or otherwise? Well, I uh, I just did a, a concert at, uh, at Christmas with the Ensemble Modern, who, if you are a Frank Zappa aficionado, mm-hmm. you will know that they were his uh, last fixed ensemble, or this is what he said anyway. And one of the people there... Um, was a bass clarinet player who used a looper. And so I'm now, this kind of opened my eyes to the possibility of loopage. Loopage. So um, if there is a next project, it might well be based around the bass guitar. I mean, of course, the, the target audience will be extremely small and uh, highly selective. Um, but I'm, uh, I'm, I'm thinking about focusing purely on bass. Um, you still yes. play the Rick you still, still playing the Rickenbacker? Yep. The, uh, 4003, which is the, the contemporary version of the 4001 for the, for the nerds out there. Oh yeah. Got a few. And it sounds great. And, uh, I I played my Rickenbacker with the Ensemble Modern. Everybody was wow. completely shocked, wow. but in a positive way, because uh, the Rickenbacker doesn't play the role. It doesn't play the traditional role that a bass, you know, in the in in some hands or in, the, in some environments is supposed to play. It's not an anonymous instrument. It's a frontline instrument. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the right hands, it uh, becomes an extraordinary thing. And uh, here I basically quote from the uh, the sound engineer who uh, who recorded our concert for the UBU. Wow, I I, I would love to hear that. Um, well, again, hey, thank you so much for your time, Martin. Um, I'm really really thankful to get a chance to, to talk with you uh, today. And that um, you and I are both among the living, and we are washing our hands uh, 20, 30 <laughs> times a day. <laughs> Thank you. 
Um, and not buying toilet paper in bulk. Right, not buying toilet paper in bulk. Um, well, let's uh, keep it that way. Yeah, I think that's. I think. I think that's fair. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to uh, whatever it is that you're that you're doing next, uh, Martin. Um, it's been a real pleasure discovering your work, and I really appreciate uh, having a chance to speak with you today. Well, thanks a lot. You got it. Have a great day. Okay. Stay healthy. Let's keep in touch. You got it. Okay. Very model of a modern major general. I'm information features of an animal and mineral. I know the kings of England and I quote the finest historical from Marathon to Waterloo in order categorical. I'm very proud of Queen's two with matters mathematical. I understand equations both the simple and quadratical. If I had the theorem, I'm teeming with a lot of news. And the many cheerful facts about the square of the hypotenuse. I'm very good at integral and differential calculus. I know the scientific names of beings and homunculus. And sure, if matters fixed to an animal and mineral, I am the very model of a modern vector general. And now I'm a big history, King Arthur's and Sir Caradox. I'm not so hard acrostics, I've a pretty taste of paradox. I quite an elegiac, all the crimes of Heliogabalus. In comics, I can form peculiarities parabolous. I can tell I'm down at Raphael's and Gerard Dalton's offenies. I'm the croaking chorus of the frogs of Aristophanes. And I can have a fugue of which I've heard the music's dinner for. Now whistle all the ears and that infernal monster's pinafore. In Babylonic cuneiform, I tell you every detail correct because it's uniform. It should be better vegetable, animal, and mineral. I am the very model of a modern major general. In fact, but I know what is meant by Babylon and Ravelin. Well, I can tell if signs your mouth's a rifle from a javelin. Knowing such affairs of sorties and surprises, I'm all very ads. And when I know precisely what is meant by commissariats. But I've learned what progress has been made in modern gunnery. But I know more of tactics and a novice and a nunnery. In short, when I'm a smattering of elemental strategy, you'll say a better major general has never sat at you. For my military knowledge, though it's plucky and adventure, has only been brought down to the beginning of the century. But still, it matters vegetable, animal, and mineral. I am the very model of a modern major general.